Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. European equity markets have been lower lately as concerns over the global banking sector reignite. The declines are another hit to the overall health of the UK economy, which is currently an outlier amongst other global markets. So what is driving the inflation story in the UK? And why is today's guest optimistic about its future performance? London-based Tom Stevenson, Investment Director at Fidelity International, joins host Pamela Ritchie today to discuss what's at play now and into the second half of 2023 for the UK and Europe. Tom shares with us that it's a big week for tech stocks as we're right in the thick of earnings season. And as earnings season goes on, we will have a pretty good sense of how tech is doing. Also, that these companies are instrumental as they are large contributors to the rally in markets this year. The S&P 500 is up about 8%, and two-thirds of that rise has been accounted for by just five tech stocks. Among other topics today, Tom shares insights on if we'll see a global recession, or if it will be more mild or a soft landing. All of this and more on today's podcast, which was recorded on April 26th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you, Tom. How are you? Hi, Pamela. Very good. Thanks for having me on again. Great to have you on. Yeah, so we'll, so actually, let's get to the markets in just a minute. But I wonder, your outlook is out, um, and... One of the very interesting bits and pieces is sort of your look at the various different assets, assets and sectors and the tech sector, particularly because of the earnings story this week. Can we go there first? Actually, the Microsoft deal fits in with that, but uh, it's it's yeah. been wild for the tech story recently. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big week for for tech stocks uh, this week. Uh, I mean, we're right in the thick of earnings season now. Uh, they're coming thick and fast. But this week, the focus is very much on tech stocks. Uh, we have Microsoft and Alphabet uh, last night, um, uh, Meta today and, and Amazon tomorrow. So I think, you know, by the end of the week, we will have a, a pretty good sense of um, of how how tech is doing. And, and, and that's really important. It's really important for the for the overall market, because obviously, as we know, these are big dominant uh, companies, but they have really uh, been uh, very instrumental. They've been big contributors to the rally in markets that's really been going on for the last six month, months or so, and certainly um, so far this year. I think that the, the S&P 500 is up 8% this year, and two-thirds of that rise has been accounted for by just five tech stocks. They account for about 20% of the market, um, but two-thirds of the rise in, in, the, in the index so far this year. So they're very, very influential. So what we're finding, what we're seeing this week is really, um, is that justified? Is that gain justified by trading? Um, uh, or is this just a play on expectations about, uh, about interest rates uh, falling? So 
the good news is that what we've seen so far, we've only had the two, we've had Microsoft and Alphabet, they were actually both a bit better than expected. Good sales in cloud computing, that's a very important driver for these uh, stocks. Uh, and also advertising, um, digital advertising, pretty positive for Alphabet as well. I mean, it's so interesting to figure out what what these stocks will represent going forward. Um, just some have said, you know, it's not even the shininess of, of brand new technology. It's uh, you just simply need them in the way that you need to heat your house. And therefore, it's more like a utility, for instance. I, I, I don't know to what extent that is or isn't true, but it's it's interesting to get your thoughts on where these fit in the story. Are these growth stocks? They're going back to the growth story. Can yeah. they with interest rates where they are or do they fit because we absolutely need them? Yeah, I mean, I think the reality, Pamela, is that they're, that they're a bit of both. Um, I mean, they, they clearly are growth stocks. And that's one of the reasons why uh, they are so um, exposed to movements in interest rates, because so much of the value of these stocks is tied up in expectations about their future growth. That when you discount that growth back to get a present day value for these stocks, um, low interest rates enhance the value. So that's why last year when interest rates were going up more than expected, tech stocks had such a bad year. And that's why this year when expectations are that interest rates are close to peaking and will start to fall again, that's good news um, for tech stocks. So in that regard, yes, absolutely, they are cyclical growth stocks. But on the other hand, you're absolutely right. You know, they are a key contributor both in business terms, in our personal lives as well to the world we live in, and we can't do without them. Um, businesses can't do without them. They're gonna to continue to spend, you know, through thick and thin, really. We are gonna to continue to spend on tech through through thick and thin. So in that regard, they're also quite defensive plays. So they, they almost have the best of both worlds. They're defensives, but they're also cyclicals. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna pay that internet bill, aren't we? Even, even more than we might discuss groceries, you might find ways of, of um, flipping coupons in a more in a more sincere way about the grocery story and the inflation there. I mean, let, let's go to the inflation. Let's go to the, the UK print because we've seen that come out. It's stuck in double digits. Um, there are lots of voices around this of why this is happening. G give us sort of the pieces of this story. Why is it different in the UK? Yeah, so so inflation peaked at 11.1% um, here in the UK. Uh, the latest print uh, last month was a couple of weeks ago was 10.1%. Now, that isn't how it was supposed to be. I mean, if you look at what's happening in the US, you look at what's happening in continental Europe. In both of those regions, uh, inflation has has tumbled much more quickly than here in the UK. It's stubbornly high uh, here in in the UK. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. But many of the drivers of inflation are just global stories. You know, food prices, energy prices, um, they, they're the same wherever, wherever you are. So what's the difference? And I think one of the key differences is the labor market here in the UK. We, we are in danger, I think, of getting stuck in a, in a, in an upward wage price spiral. And indeed, the, the chief economist at the Bank of England was rather controversially warning people today to look, just say, look, you've just got to accept that you are a bit poorer than you thought you were. And at some point, someone's got to break this upward spiral. You've got to stop demanding um, higher higher pay rises um, or we're never going to get out of this inflationary uh, logjam that we're in. But, but clearly something has to happen because inflation is a bigger problem here than it is 
really wherever else you look in the developed world. So part of that is the Brexit story. It's a different trade relationship with Europe. Um, and and there have been various pieces to that story, too. Um, on the labor front, is that the main difference? Yes, I think it's I think it's a fundamental difference. I mean, freedom of movement has gone um, and it's really made us realize how important um, uh, labor coming into the UK from the rest of the EU when we were a member of the EU, how important that was to uh, keeping a lid on prices in the UK, keeping the um, keeping the jobs market fluid. Um, it, it is much more difficult now than it was um, to find people to do, you know, many jobs, to, to find people to, 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 to work in the bars, to find people to pick the fruit. You know, that's another factor behind the food inflation. So all of these things are interconnected. It's not just about the labour market. It feeds into the cost base of, of companies um, and, and it becomes self-reinforcing. So, yeah, Brexit is a, is a factor and it continues to be a factor. So interesting. If we go back to sort of the, the equity story, because we'll we'll take a look at some of the different asset classes around the world. They're they're in your outlook um, for equities, and you described it within the discussion of tech. It's it's an earning story this year. The valuation, the depreciation on that side, certainly for tech anyway, was was all last year. Um, yeah. How do you take a look at equities, and then and then we'll move to the fixing. Yeah, sure. So I, I think that um, you're right that last year was uh, was largely about uh, valuations. It was also about uh, interest rates and inflation. Well, the interest rate and inflation story continues into this year. But I think the valuation story played itself out last year. We saw a big um, reset of, of valuations really all around the world. I mean, obviously, Valuations settled at different levels. The US is a much more expensive market than the UK, continental Europe, Japan, emerging markets. There's that, that differential. But overall, um, valuations did fall um, across the world. And this year, I think the focus is, is all about um, can earnings hold up? Can earnings meet expectations? And are we heading into a recession? Those are the two key questions because and they're, and again, they're related. Because if we are heading into a recession, then it is probably over optimistic to think that we're only going to get a small decline in earnings, which is what the what the market is currently pricing in. If you look back historically um, in a recessionary environment, you would expect a double digit decline in in earnings. And uh, if we were to get that, then I think you look at the valuations again and you say, well, is a is a multiple of 18 times expected earnings reasonable if those earnings are falling in double digits? And probably the answer is not. So then you get a double whammy of a reset, again, a downward reset of valuations and falling earnings. That's not good for the market. On the other hand, markets look through these things. They look through recessions. They look to better times ahead. Um, we know that that's what and that, that that's what happens. And investors need to position themselves. Uh, for that. If if multiples were to rise in anticipation of a recovery post a recession to, let's say, 21 times earnings, 20, 21 times earnings, then quite plausibly, you can see the market getting back to its peak levels at the beginning of, uh, of last year again. So that's why earnings season and the next earnings season and the one after that are so, in, are so important, because it's that trajectory of earnings which really is going to drive the markets this year. Yeah. 
the bond side of the story, obviously the interest rate story uh, ties neatly into this. But when you think about actually UK government bonds, for instance, six months ago, seven months ago, um, it's a very interesting time for government bonds around the world. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the story for, for UK government bonds has changed out of all recognition over the last six months. I mean, six months ago, people were, um, you know, looking um, totally bemused at what was going on in the UK. And they now feel very much more relaxed. Um, uh, policy seems to be much more sensible. Um, uh, the, the, the relationship between the UK and its partners is much better. Um, so the outlook for government bonds is now much more about the interest rate um, direction of travel than it is about uh, what what some people rather sort of, you know, uh, crudely called the idiot premium, um, which was attached to, 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 to UK assets. That's no longer the case. Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, interest rates are, I think, clearly coming towards a peak. We're not quite there yet, probably. We've got interest rate decisions next week in the US and the following week uh, in the UK. We expect uh, a, a quarter point rise in both cases. But I think that's probably it then. Um, even in the UK where inflation is high, yeah. I think that is probably it. Because I think, yes, inflation is high, but but the expectation is that it will come down quite quite sharply quite soon. So I think interest rates are close to peaking. That's good news for, for government bonds in particular. It's less good for corporate bonds because you have to ask yourself the question, well, why are interest rates starting to come down? Well, the reason why interest rates are coming down is because the economy is not in particularly great shape. And that's why the equity market often underperforms um, after the peak in interest rates, because investors start to say, well, OK, it's great that interest rates are coming down. That's a relief. But on the other hand, why are they coming down? Well, they're coming down because, you know, the, the central banks understand that there's there's a problem. But for government bonds, which are really just a play on interest rates, there's no default risks there really with, with the, the US government or the UK government. There's no default risk. Uh, so it's a play on interest rates. And as interest rates come down, I think government bonds look like an interesting play at the moment. Say that, but there's a debt ceiling discussion that's uh, well, I, yeah, I, 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 as I just, said those words, I did, <laughs> I did think about that. Yeah. <laughs> we can laugh, but it's uh, not funny for some. Uh, we'll laugh about it later, not not yet. A um, couple of questions rolling in. So, actually, let, let's make sure we get to these. Tom, can you comment on how high energy costs in Europe are impacting the economy broadly? Yes, absolutely. It's a good question because, um, uh, it, in a different way, from how we thought they were three months ago, six months ago. Uh, you know, if you if you roll back to last autumn, there was a lot of anxiety about um, energy prices. And us, as we went into the winter, the expectation that this was really going to be a major problem. And I think what has turned around sentiment towards European equities in the last six months, and it has been the unexpected, um, you know, strong performer of equity markets over the last six months, has been this lowering in um, in energy prices and this realization that we got through the winter, uh, the storage facilities were full, uh, prices have come down. It all looks a lot better than it did six months ago, and that is feeding through into the general economic story uh, in Europe. And it's why um, earnings forecasts in Europe are 
stronger than really almost anywhere else in the developed world. Um, the revisions to earnings are much better in Europe than they are elsewhere. Is there further to go in the Europe trade? Yes, I think so, uh, because it's starting from a fairly low base. So that's a good it's a positive story. Um, and but valuations are still quite low. So, you know, if you make the comparison with the US, you know, European shares might be trading on 12 or 13 times versus 17 or 18 times. And yet the earnings revision story is stronger. So, uh, yes, I think there's a bit further to go with Europe. We like Europe. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And some of the other assets, I mean, even take a look at gold. So, there, you know, once you get too many conversations about sticky inflation, um, gold becomes quite a story. It's had a roaring few months, actually. It's been extraordinary. Does that, do you see that continuing? Well, I, it, it, it's been slightly surprising, the, 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 the strength of gold, because you think that the main driver of the gold price is usually real uh, interest rates. Uh, when 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 real uh, interest rates are are rising, um, then you would not expect um, uh, gold to do well because the alternative is more attractive. Gold does not pay an income, so when you can get a decent income elsewhere, you would not expect gold to do well. However, the counter to that is that gold is seen as a safe haven, uh, and in particular. Um, central banks all around the world are seeing gold as a sell, uh, as a safe haven. So I saw a figure that um, buying by central banks in 2022 versus 2021 was up 151%. Central wow. banks are really loading up on gold as a kind of alternative um, reserve currency, as a as a safe haven, as a as a port in the storm, and that is what's what has driven the. Um, the, the, the gold price up to um, uh, up to its um, uh, uh, well close to its all time high, close to its all time high. So let's just go back to the comment made by is, is it Hugh Pill, who's the the chief yeah, economist, the chief economist. At, um, at the Bank of England, saying that you know on some level he believes uh, people within the economy in the UK are going to have to get used to different levels, and, and that's just sort of tough medicine, but th but that's the way it is. But that kind of comment at, at, as a reaction, it does bring to light what a difficult position central banks are in. Yes, it, it, it does. Well, A, it's a controversial thing to say. And um, and for people who have lived through, you know, more than 10 years of uh, essentially austerity. So, I mean, you know, uh, the, the, there has been wage suppression in, in the public sector um, and uh, wages have been pegged at lower than inflation for, for a decade and more. So you can understand why there is a, a high degree of unrest. In the UK, a lot of more more strike action in the UK than there has been since the 1970s um, and 1980s. So you can you can you can understand uh, what he's what what he's saying. He's not the first person to make comments like that because the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, made similar comments uh, a few months ago and had a similar reaction um, uh, as it happens. But you're right. You know, central banks do face a real dilemma at the moment because they've got Sticky inflation, which is largely driven by by wages, which is why they're right to focus on that and to comment on that. Sticky inflation, but an economy apparently heading towards a recession. So if you if you talk to our um, in-house um, strategists here in, in London, 
um, they are they are saying that they expect uh, a, a recession, a global uh, recession. They're putting an 80 percent chance on a mild recession, a 15 percent chance on a more severe recession. And uh, a soft landing comes in at just five percent. So, you know, clearly there's a lot of anxiety about the health of the economy. And at the same time, there's a lot of anxiety about the level of inflation. So it's a tough job being a central banker at the moment. It is. Does a, does a mild recession take care of some of the inflation? Yeah, well, I think it does. And, and uh, you know, and, and I think that I think that that is why it's right to expect interest rates to be uh, coming down later in the year, because I think in, uh, inflation will will be coming down. I saw that the the, the German the German government uh, today uh, doubled their growth forecasts. Uh, and and expected inflation to fall from it's around six percent in 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 Germany at the moment down to about three percent um you know within a year so uh that's 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 a very encouraging development again you're positive on positive on continental Europe yeah um, this there's a, a question coming in and we might sort of make it double pronged so the question is how do you see the reopening of China influencing commodity prices? and the economy. I mean, commodity prices are important to the UK markets, also important to the Canadian markets, but also, you know, the reopening of China to Europe generally. So so kind of commodities and Europe, the economy. Yes. Well, I mean, I think the, the reopening of China is is one of the, the, the key events uh, for, for global markets at the moment. Uh, I, I mean, I think it, it, it's no coincidence that markets picked up uh, in sort of November, December last year as the, the China reopening story began to emerge rather surprisingly. I mean, we weren't expecting it. It has been a quicker reopening than than, than anyone uh, expected. Uh, and we're starting to see it coming through um, in in the numbers. We had very strong um, GDP numbers out of uh, China 10 days or so ago. Interestingly, the Chinese market has underperformed ever since those ever since those good numbers came out. But that's that's the, the the slight perversity of markets uh, sometimes. But generally speaking, I think China reopening is a very positive story. Obviously, it's a good good news for 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 commodity um, prices. It's very good news also. That I'm, you know, coming back to to Europe again. Uh, you know, Europe is a big export region, um, and uh, you know, luxury goods, um, uh, cars. A lot of this, a lot of this goes to China. And so China reopening is a very positive story for Europe. And that's another reason why earnings estimates have been rising. Yeah. Fascinating. And, and do you think, I mean, you hear a lot about also supply chains and, and the difficulties with China reopening. Like there aren't enough planes, for instance, for the demand on the tourism side. So you wonder if some of that gets booked into next year, for instance, um, more on the, I guess, tourism is more of an import in that sense. Uh, rather than the export story, but that that may take a while to play out. That might be a slow burn. Well, I think I mean I think the good thing about this story is that it has legs and it will continue uh, for some time. So I think it does it it, it 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 will be an important factor in us navigating through this potential mild recession that we have coming up later this year. But I think that will drag us through and 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 set us on on a growth path after that. So interesting. Let's take a look at, at the property sector. This is in your outlook. Ultimately, there are lots of headlines about real estate. How, how are you looking at it particularly? 
Yes. Well, I mean, the, the, the commercial real estate sector has ha, has been uh, a, a casualty, if you like, of the of the banking crisis, the, the banking turmoil that we saw we saw in in March. It's it's more it's more of a problem in the US, to, to be honest, because um, small regional banks, which which the, the, the banks which are at the heart of these the, the, the problems in the banking sector, uh, there's a there's an intimate link between those and the property sector. Um, commercial property loans account for a very high proportion of the assets on those banks' uh, balance sheets. So so that's one of the one of the issues: the availability of funding um, to the commercial property sector. But there are other headwinds uh, for for the commercial property sector, not least um, uh, the, uh, the the whole demand uh, picture. Uh, I mean. Um, I'm at home today. You're at home today. Um, you know, demand for offices, um, you know, is less than it was and is likely to remain less than it was. Uh, so that's what that's one head headwind for the commercial property sector. Another actually an important headwind is uh, climate change. You know, many, many buildings uh, are simply not going to be fit for purpose once um, more stringent environmental legislation kicks in. Um, it, you know, it, it's estimated that a very high proportion of buildings just aren't going to be up to scratch by 2030 when a whole raft of new legislation comes in uh, here, in, here in the UK. And the amount of money that will need to be spent to upgrade those uh, buildings is very significant. And uh, it, it frankly just makes many buildings probably obsolete. So that's a real challenge for the sector. The positive for, for commercial property is it's a good source of reliable uh, income and, you know, that's obviously attractive to investors. So it's a difficult balance between the two. Let's take a look uh, sort of at Asia. Let's take a look at Japan, particularly lots of G7 stories circulating right now. Um, Japan, Japan is back, right? Japan seems to be back. It's coming out of COVID. Um, finally, it's been a, it's, it's been a long haul. Um, there's still quite a long way to to go there. I mean, I was looking at the uh, the inbound tourism figures and uh, the Chinese um, tourists, which are so important to the Japanese economy, uh, still running at less than 10 percent of what they were in 2019. So that is a story which has got a long, a long way uh, still to to unfold. Japan is a great play on global recovery. Um, so I think, um, again, when once markets start looking forward to life after the slowdown, uh, then Japan starts to look quite, quite interesting. Um, and I think that Japan is just just an interesting country uh, in, in as much as the reforms that are taking place there. You know, the Bank of Japan, but in, in, in terms of government and in terms of the the investor friendliness of um, Japanese companies. Uh, for example, buybacks, dividends, they're all growing very, very strongly. So, uh, you know, Japan has been written off so many times. Uh, I think it's got great potential um, despite its demographic challenges. It's got great, great potential and it's cheap. You know, it's like it, it's it's as cheap as the UK and, and you know, the, the UK is very cheap as well. So something that speaking of tourism and, and things that that have legs, where will you spend the coronation? I mean, is it of interest to you? What what 
what will it mean for the UK? Yeah, well, I mean, I will. I will watch the. Uh, I will watch the coronation. Obviously, I think you know we haven't had one for seventy years. <laughs> um, it's uh, you know uh, who knows when there'll be when there'll be another one. Um, and it's always a, it's always a great event. I mean, I think the, from a, from an economic perspective, it's not insignificant because we've actually got three. We always have two bank holidays in in May uh, here in the UK. This year, we've got three Mondays off um in in may so there are a lot of people will be out doing things and if the weather ever clears up in the uk we've had a dreadful spring it's been wet it's been cold if the sun comes out and we have all these bank holidays then that could actually produce quite a significant boost for the uk economy and we could do with that yeah fascinating it's fantastic to get your thoughts and and the particular view on the uk and i yeah happy coronation thanks for joining us tom stevenson thank you pamela Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you. See you next time.